Good morning. I invite you this morning to come with me on a journey, a walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I know it sounds fun, right? <laughs> but we all walk through such landscapes, and the psalmist did too. So let's take a look at Psalm 23 this morning. <clears throat> the psalms are a wonderful part of our worship because they invite us to speak their words as our own and to imagine ourselves as occupants of their poetic imagery. When the psalm reads, the Lord is my shepherd, it means the Lord is your shepherd, not just the psalmist. As we walk through the psalm this morning, I invite you to insert yourself into the scenes, images, and experiences of the psalmist. As I refer to the psalmist, feel free to mentally replace psalmist with words such as I, me, my, or our, and we. Our psalm for today uh, does present us with a journey, and it is defined by movement, not just in a poetic sense, but in the literal sense of the scenes it describes, as a descent into a valley and an ascent to the house of the Lord. When one finds his or herself in a valley of gloom, movement is necessary and guidance is even more welcome. Before beginning any journey, especially a journey through a wild place, it is wise to plan ahead. So before we embark, let's survey the landscape. The structure of the psalm and the metaphor of a journey, uh, and the metaphor of a journey it includes, lends itself to a verse-by-verse walkthrough. As we walk through the psalm verse-by-verse, we can inhabit the journey presented in the psalm step-by-step. There are three elements of the landscape that are worth noticing at the outset. Number one, there's a valley. Two, there's a path, a way to walk through the valley. And number three, there's a destination, the house of the Lord. The psalm does not describe a wandering, but a journey with a clear path and a guide who leads to a destination. The psalmist is intentionally led through the valley, but is not alone. The psalmist walks, but it is Yahweh who leads, and Yahweh's goodness and faithfulness which follow. God's presence is evident to the psalmist, and it is God who leads the psalmist to the destination, the house of the Lord. By the end of our walk through this valley, we find ourselves ascending a slope and returning to God's house. Overall, this journey is presented in the psalm over two sections. The first, verses 1 through 3, speak about God and about the psalmist. The second section, verses four through six, present the psalmist as speaking to God. Each of these sections also follow the logical progression of the psalm. The first introduces the premise that Yahweh is my shepherd, I will not walk, I will not want, that is, God provides for me. The second se- section introduces premise number two. Yahweh is my shepherd, I will not fear harm. That is, God protects me. The final verse of the psalm states the logical conclusion of these two premises. Because God, one, provides for me, and two, protects me, goodness and love will follow me, and I will return to his house. The first section introduces not only this idea of provision, but also the first, in the first word of the psalm, the one who provides. Yahweh is my shepherd. This verse stands out in its use of the, of the divine name. When our English Bibles present the word Lord in all caps, this represents not the Hebrew word for Lord, but the proper personal name by which God is called in the Old Testament, the name Yahweh. And I recognize that's not the case in our uh, bulletin this morning, but if you look in most English Bibles, (laughs) it's represented with all caps. This is significant to our understanding of Psalm 23, 
because there is a connection between the divine name, Yahweh, and God's kingship over Israel and the whole earth. To see this connection, you may not even need to turn the page of your Bible. Just look at Psalm 24. It's not simply God who is my shepherd. It is Yahweh, the one who, in the words of Psalm 24, owns all the earth and all who dwell in it. This idea of Yahweh's kingship is pertinent to the psalm. Within the cultural milieu of Israel, shepherding was often used to describe kingship. Kings sometimes even explicitly referred to themselves as shepherds. We see this association play out elsewhere in scripture with the anointing of the shepherd boy David in the book of Samuel. It is perhaps also present in the arrival of both shepherds and kings at the birth of King Jesus in the gospels. In describing Yahweh as the shepherd who protects and provides, Psalm 23 is describing God as the king who protects and provides. God's ability to address our lack and our insecurity is rooted in his role as king and creator in his authority. And as much as this psalm is about Yahweh my shepherd, it is about Yahweh my king. And I don't think it's an accident that the compiler of the Psalter placed Psalms 23 and 24 next to each other. Of course, those who compiled the Psalter didn't have the benefit of pre-numbered psalms to aid their uh, decisions. Um, but listen to these excerpts of Psalm 24. Yahweh's is the earth and everything in it, the world and all who dwell therein. Who is this honorable king? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Who may go up to the dwelling of his holiness? The one with innocent hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24 ex states explicitly what is implicit in Psalm 23. Yahweh is king, and those who follow him on his path, whose deeds are blameless, he leads to his house, to his temple the dwelling of his holiness. Psalm 24 continues and clarifies the themes of Psalm 23 by describing Yahweh as the king and creator of all things, as well as describing the path of the one who can go up to the dwelling of his holiness, to his house. Our journey in Psalm 23 begins by introducing Yahweh our shepherd, following his paths through the valley, and ends with our return to his house, which is the place of his rule. The Lord's house is the place of his rule. Both the first and last lines of the psalm recognize that God's provision for us comes from his seat of authority. Because Yahweh is our shepherd king, we will not lack that which we need because he rules over all things. And I believe that this uh, first line summarizes for us what the rest of verses one through three um, are elaborating. That as our shepherd king, Yahweh provides for us. This is what it means to be without want. The remainder of this section paints for us a scene of this provision. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my life. Imagine what this would mean to a people who live in an arid climate where vegetation is short-lived. It comes and bursts during the winter, but remains withered for most of the year. God brings us to a place where the earth exudes life, a place where he brings restoration to our own lives. The psalmist also says, he guides me on right paths on account of his name. This last part of verse three transitions from describing God's character as provider and introduces the journey metaphor of the psalm. God brings us to places of rest, and he also leads us on right paths through dark valleys. Right here can mean righteous or straight, depending on the context, while pathways refers to a specific course. Sometimes this word is even used to describe wagon tracks. This is not just a path, but a path that has been set out. But as the second section of the psalm begins, we recognize that sometimes this path leads us through difficult places. Sometimes God leads us on right paths, which go down through the valley of the shadow of death. It is under these circumstances that verse four introduces our second premise. Yahweh is my shepherd, 
I will not fear. I will not fear harm even in the darkest of places because, because God protects and provides for me. It may be worth recognizing here that the word evil is broad in scope. It can mean evil in the sense that we typically use it in English, but it can also refer to disaster, danger, or harm. This breadth is narrowed, though, in verse 5, which introduces those who trouble me, the oppressors, the attackers. The image of God's protection here is vivid. Opposite the one who brings evil, God sets a table. Opposite, opposite hostility is hospitality. Can you imagine? Two individuals, one assailing the other, and God pulls out a tablecloth, silverware, a picnic basket. God sets up a table for a meal in front of one individual and opposite the other. And God does not just protect and provide in this sense, but he does so abundantly. The table Yahweh sets for us opposite the attacker is not set with a meager meal, but with abundance, head smeared with oil, cup overfull with wine. In leading us, Yahweh meets our needs so that we do not have to fear harm or lack, whether in pastures of rest or in valleys of oppressors. After this meal, we come to the end of our walk through the valley and to the conclusion of the two premises we have identified, one, that God provides, and two, that God protects. The effect of God's protection and provision is that goodness, tov, and loving kindness, chesed, follow us. But where does Yahweh lead the psalmist with goodness and faithfulness in tow? Through and out of the valley to dwell in the house of the Lord, that is, Yahweh's temple, for the length of our days. If Yahweh protects and provides for us before our attackers, how much more so in his own home? If our shepherd king can protect us in the valleys, he will certainly do so on the hilltop from which he rules. Earlier, we recognized the significance of the personal name for God, Yahweh, that introduces this psalm. We recognize that it can be associated with God's role as creator and king. This association is again apparent in the closing words of this psalm. When the Hebrew Bible talks about the house of the Lord, it is referring to the place of God's dwelling, to the temple of Yahweh. Within the conceptual framework of the Bible, the temple is the place not only of God's dwelling, but of his rule. The closing line of this psalm brings us back to the idea of God as the shepherd king, God our shepherd king. He provides for us and protects us, and eventually brings us to dwell in the place from which he exercises all authority over his creation. So, in tracing the psalmist's journey step by step, we have seen God's provision and protection as we have descended into the valley and ascended to the house of the Lord. We have seen God's goodness and love as we approach the end of the journey to dwell in his temple, the place of his rule. We have also seen that God's goodness, love, and invitation to dwell with him are, in the context of the psalm, the results of his provision and protection for us. But God's protection and provision are presented in the psalm in antithetical statements. I will not want, I will not fear harm. There's a tension present between provision and lack, between protection and vulnerability. This tension is introduced within the psalm right at its center in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death. This even though contrasts the valley with green pastures and the straight paths down which God leads, God's paths which allow the psalmist to take confidence in God's protection and provision through this valley. This notion of God's protection and provision is comforting to me, as I've spent the last year or so struggling with questions regarding this relationship between power and vulnerability. Part of what it means for God to be our shepherd king in the manner presented in Psalm 23, as well as Psalm 24, 
so that God is an authority and God is not vulnerable. Allow me to share an example. When I was working in a residential program for young men and women with mental health struggles, I learned a lot about the dynamics of authority and vulnerability. The teenagers and residents were particularly vulnerable. They were minors, many of whom had experienced abuse and neglect, often at the hands of caretakers, sometimes their own parents. Many of these young people exhibited behaviors that would seem bizarre and outlandish to us. But for them, these were attempts to gain a sense of safety, whether that safety was actual or felt. This grasping at safety was constant as past traumatic experiences were triggered by otherwise innocuous events in their daily lives. Constantly reliving these past experiences meant continually living in a position of perceived vulnerability. Part of our work was to help these individuals develop the skills necessary to self-regulate and reestablish a safe sense of safety in a manner that was not harmful to themselves or to others. In doing this work, I quickly recognized that felt safety is a basic need. By felt safety, I mean a sense of safety that is subjectively experienced by an individual. By basic need, I mean that a person, any person, will use whatever means they have at their disposal to reestablish felt safety when that sense of safety is threatened. Just as a person who is truly starving or thirsty will do anything for food and water, a person, any person, who feels sufficiently unsafe will use whatever means are at their disposal to reestablish their sense of safety. They will use whatever resources they have to assuage their insecurity. These principles apply to all of us. As one commentator on the psalm said, you get stressed and afraid not because you are bad at remembering Romans 28, that God works for, for those who love him, or because you don't have enough faith over fear, but because your body does not feel adequately safe. It is the neuroperception of a scarcity of safety that keeps us sinking into states of stress to self-protect. Self-protection is a basic, basic instinct that we all have. For the teenagers who lived within this residential program, the means of self-protection were usually behaviors the program was designed to restrain and redirect. These dynamics of vulnerability, however, become transformed when they come into contact with dynamics of power that are not so restrained. When people in positions of authority feel unsafe or insecure, they will, like anyone else, use whatever resources are at their disposal to reestablish their sense of safety. But often one of those resources is other people. This is alarming because we see these dynamics play out in story after story of abuse and manipulation in both the church and secular institutions. I know that many, <clears throat> if not most or even all of us, have been led to Anglicanism from other traditions. And I imagine that I'm not the only person um, whose journey towards Anglicanism was in part a response to the abuses of power that I witnessed and experienced in former traditions and denominations. And especially in the power dynamics, for me personally, of my alma mater, Small Baptist University in the cornfields of Ohio. There are persons in authority felt threatened by the relative theological and political diversity of the institution, and used all means of manipulation, intimidation, NDAs, and other forms of censorship to assuage their insecurities. This marriage of insecurity and power has left me skeptical of most authorities, especially religious authorities. But what does this have to do with the Lord our shepherd? God has authority and power, but he is never insecure. As creator, nothing has power over him, nor does he lack anything. God has no reason to be afraid. 
God has no need to grasp for safety. Because our God is secure, we can receive his provision and protection without concern that he will wield his power against us. This is so encouraging as we in our own attempts to grasp at security often wield our positions of power, which we all have, against each other. And I think it is safe to say that almost, I just said this, I think it is safe to say that almost everyone occupies some power, some position of authority. It's not in our lectionary today, but I think that Paul's discussion of sin in Romans 5 through 8 is helpful here. I recently encountered a New Testament scholar who observes that in this passage, sin is presented um, almost personified. Um, it's not just something that we do, but it's something that acts upon us. Paul says that sin enters the world, it dwells in us, and it causes us to do that which we do not want to do. Sin enslaves and corrupts. Sometimes when sin is done to me, just like the teenagers I worked with in that residential program, I attempt to assuage my own hurt and vulnerability in ways that harm others. And so sin begets sin, harm does more harm, corruption corrupts. But not so with God. Sin does not mar his character or corrupt him. He does not experience insecurity and grasp for safety as we do. This means that the protection and provision he gives us is trustworthy. We do not need to fear his motivations or dispositions. He is in authority, but he does not manipulate or coerce or deceive. He will never ask you to sign an NDA. <laughs> and learning to trust his protection and provision means that we can follow him confidently on paths through dark valleys. We can follow him confidently without scrambling for security in ways that do harm to ourselves and to others. I personally am still learning what it means to practically trust God's protection and provision. After my experiences with religious authority as an undergrad, and after guiding young men and women through the fallout of the abuses levied against them, it's difficult for me to trust God's protection and provision. But one thing I have learned and come to see as the first step in this process is recognizing the aspects of God's character that are presented in Psalm 23 and in Psalm 24. Because God is absolutely and utterly secure in his power, he is not motivated to wield it in ways that do harm. We can be confident that because our shepherd king created and rules all things, his protection and provision are legitimate and trustworthy. We can trust God to lead us on straight paths through dark valleys to a place of dwelling in his goodness and love in the house of the Lord forever.